The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am so glad that you're here, as always. And if this is the first time that you've ever tuned in, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. And I'm not surprised because this is an excellent one to get started on. I'm speaking with Harvard astrophysicist Avi Loeb. Professor Loeb is a Harvard theoretical physicist whose areas of professional interest include cosmology and astrophysics. In this episode, we're discussing his new book, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth, which proposes that Oumuamua, the interstellar object that passed through our solar system in 2017, may have been the creation of an alien intelligence. Now, um, Dr. Loeb explains in detail why he believes that is so, and I love that he doesn't care that the scientific community isn't exactly jumping on board immediately. I don't think that surprises any of us, you know. Um, There's a lot of reticence to put yourself out there, but I love how he doesn't care about that. His sole focus is on getting the truth out, and I believe that with the emergence of greater technology that's going to be going out there, this will become something that everyone can accept and understand as reality. Um, So I think this is a very exciting time to be alive, to have this kind of information out there. And I'm just thrilled that Dr. Loeb shared his time with us this week. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, of course, please leave us an Apple review. Even one sentence helps so much for the ratings and getting the show out to more and more people all over the world who um, want to expand truth and understanding just like we do. So uh, I hope you enjoy this episode with Harvard astrophysicist Avi Loeb. Well, hello, Professor Loeb. Welcome to the show. I am so thrilled that you are here. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Absolutely. Now we're here to talk about your new book. Can you talk about the premise of the book? It's called uh, Extraterrestrial, the First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Why did you feel like this was the right time for this book? Why now? Well, uh, the basic message is that we might not be the smartest kid on the block. Uh, You know, I have uh, two daughters, and when they were very young, they thought that they're unique and privileged, and the world centers on them. And that changed when I took them to the kindergarten. Uh, And we haven't passed that uh, threshold yet. We still think that we are unique and special and privileged, and we might be the smartest uh, kids in the universe. Uh, and I think it's very unlikely that Albert Einstein was the smartest scientist that ever lived since the Big Bang, because uh, most of the stars formed billions of years before the sun, and, uh, and next to one of them there might have been a planet like the Earth where a, a much smarter scientist than Albert Einstein existed a billion years ago. And if that was true, then over the past billion years, that civilization had a chance of sending uh, equipment to our vicinity. And 
whether we live in such a reality or not is not a philosophical question. We just need to look around. You know, you can sit at home and say, I don't have any neighbors because I don't, need the, uh, I don't hear anyone knocking on my door. But uh, of course, you have to look through your windows and better use a telescope to find your neighbors. Most of the time, nobody is knocking on your door. And um, the po- my point uh, in the book is that we have seen something that you may regard as a knock on the door, even though we were not paying attention. Um, and um, that is the first object that we discovered uh, near Earth that came from outside the solar system. Uh, it was discovered by a telescope in Hawaii, uh, given the name Oumuamua, which means a scout or a messenger from afar. And it looked really weird. Uh, it didn't look like a comet or an asteroid, the type of rocks that we saw before in the solar system. And uh, because of all of its anomalies, I said maybe it was produced by another civilization artificially because it doesn't look like any rock we've seen before. Now, uh, I explain in my book all the anomalies and other scientists, other astronomers try to explain them uh, as a type of a rock that we've never seen before, like made of pure hydrogen, made of pure nitrogen. We've never seen anything like it. And to me, it reminds of... uh, a, a cave dweller that finds a cell phone mm. uh, and of course that person is used to playing with rocks uh, and so the argument would be that oh this cell phone is a rock of a type that we've never seen before but if uh, if the cave dweller bothers to press a button uh, then it would become clear that uh, that device can record the uh, voice uh, and uh, obviously it's not a rock. And so my point is that, you know, extraordinary uh, realizations um, require us to be open-minded and require us to fund the search, to look through our windows and and build telescopes, you know, that will allow us to see things that are unusual. And and I think the, the discovery of Oumuamua is intriguing enough for us to do it in the future. That's why I established a new project called the Galileo Project. We can talk about that. And um, actually, the government already recognizes this. The, uh, President Biden signed into law a few weeks ago uh, the establishment of a new office in government that would assemble data on objects that look uh, weird near Earth. They are called unidentified aerial phenomena. Wow, that's incredible, because I feel like until this point, there was such a reticence in the government, in the scientific community, you know, your peers out there who didn't want to touch anything like this. They wanted to poo-poo it. They wanted to say it was a comet or an asteroid, even though it looked significantly different and moved differently. Can you talk about the difference specifically about how how Oumuamua is different than a comet or an asteroid? Right, so first of all, Uh, astronomers thought it's a comet because comets are rocks covered with ice and when they get close to the sun they get warmed up and the ice evaporates and you end up with a tail, a cometary tail made of water vapor and dust and there was nothing like that around this object you couldn't see any cometary tail so it was definitely not a comet of the type that we are familiar with Uh, and then the astronomer said oh well maybe it's just a rock you know but as it was tumbling every eight hours, the amount of sunlight reflected from it changed by a factor of 10. And that implied that it has a very extreme shape, sort of like a piece of paper tumbling in the wind. Um, uh, the amount of area that you see from the piece of paper changes by a lot as it tumbles. And um, 
Um, and the amount of area of this object changed by a factor of 10 projected on the sky for us because it just reflected sunlight. Um, and uh, then uh, it implied that it's most likely flat and um, with a very extreme shape, like a pancake. Mm. Uh, and then uh, this object was pushed away from the sun by a force other than that, that cannot be due to the rocket effect from evaporating gases. Uh, and the only explanation I could think of is the reflection of sunlight is pushing it. Mm. But for that it, to be effective, it needed to be very thin, like a sail. And um, actually in September 2020, there was another object discovered. Uh, it was given the name 2020 SO. It was found by the same telescope in Hawaii. And it ended up being uh, a rocket booster that was launched in 1966 wow. uh, from Earth. And it also had no cometary tail, obviously, uh, and it was pushed away from the sun by reflecting sunlight. So here is another illustration for an artificial object. This one was not designed to be a sail. It was just thin. Uh, we know that uh, it's artificial because NASA produced it. And uh, the question is, who produced Oumuamua? Well, what's to say that this isn't some you know, man-made thing from the 60s. I mean, we were starting to have stealth technology in the 60s. Is this something that our government produced and sent off and they don't want to claim ownership of it now? I mean, is that a possibility? Well, that was actually the explanation of 2020 SO, this object discovered in September 2020. But in the case of Oumuamua, it cannot be the explanation because Oumuamua is not bound to the sun gravitationally. So it came... Uh, with a, a very high speed, uh, so it couldn't have been associated with a launch from Earth because um, then, um, you know, if it were to come back, it would be bound to the sun. Um, uh, so if we send something from Earth at a speed that would uh, not make it not bound to the sun, like, for example, the New Horizons mission that is leaving the solar system, uh, then it will never come back. But if we wanted to come back from some earlier time, then it needs to be bound to the sun, and we would notice that it's not moving very fast. Oh. So going back to the scientific community, your peers, who, who again want to you know, present a united front, what do you think it's going to take for them to say, yes, this is a strange phenomenon, yes, we can't explain it, there is then a possibility of life beyond Earth, intelligence beyond Earth? What do you think it's going to take to tip the scales in, in your favor, in your direction? with what you've been saying this whole time. Very simple, uh, having a megapixel image of such an object. So if you imagine taking a, a, a cell phone and snapping a, a photograph by standing on the object, that would be it. Now, uh, it would tell you whether it's uh, uh, what uh, some astronomers suggested, maybe a hydrogen iceberg, nitrogen iceberg, a cloud of dust particles, or it has bolts and screws on it, and you can press a button if you want. You know, you can tell from a high-resolution image. So it's not a philosophical question. You know, there was a philosopher that published a paper in a, a prestigious uh, scientific journal arguing that based on philosophical reasoning, it must be uh, natural. And that looked ridiculous to me because uh, I thought that we learned the lesson from four centuries ago when philosophers put uh, Galileo Galilei in house arrest just because he said that the earth moves around the sun and they said, no, the, the earth is at the center of the universe 
everything is moving around the earth. The sun is also moving around the earth. And he said, why, why, why don't you look through my telescope and maybe you will realize that you're wrong. And they said, no, we don't want to look through a telescope. And they put him in house arrest. Now, the problem is, if you were to ask those philosophers to design a rocket that would get to Mars, they would get it wrong. They would never reach Mars because they, they would think that Mars moves around the earth. And uh, that's a test that what they argued is wrong. It doesn't matter how popular they were at the time, how politically influential they were. They could put him in house arrest so that other people would not listen to him. Today, they would have canceled him on social media. But that's completely irrelevant. The earth continued to move around the sun. So whether we recognize that we have neighbors or not, if we say that we don't have neighbors, if we ridicule any search for evidence for that, if we argue that there is no extraordinary evidence, that will not get rid of our neighbors. <laughs> so uh, it's really simple. And um, to get the evidence, uh, all you need is to send a camera close enough to an object like Oumuamua and get the image. That's all. And uh, I established the Galileo project uh, in uh, July uh, 2021, uh, in, uh, of course, uh, to commemorate the, the spirit of Galileo Galilei that argued that evidence should lead us rather than prejudice. But uh, this project, one of the main uh, objectives, one of the branches is to um, design a space mission that would bring a camera close enough to the next Oumuamua. You know, the Oumuamua was so unusual and unexpected that by the time we realize that it's special, uh, it's already gone and we can't look at it. Uh, it's sort of like going on a date with someone that you really start to appreciate after the date, and then it's too late. That person is not around anymore. So then you are trying to date the next Oumuamua. <laughs> and that's what we uh, the hope is. <laughs> the hope is to find the more objects that look like it, as weird as it was. Uh, uh, with um, the Vera Rubin Observatory that will come online within mm. a year in Chile, uh, much more sensitive than the Pan-STARRS telescope in Hawaii that discovered Oumuamua. And uh, we should find more of the same. You know, when I go to the kitchen and I see an ant, I usually get alarmed because there must be many more ants out there. That's what I'm thinking. I mean, is this this new frontier that we're having, you know, we're heading towards with all of this new technology that's coming out within, you know, a few years... Do you think there's going to be so much evidence out there that it's going to shock people? Or do you think there's been enough trickling of information with books like yours, with people who have recorded their own sightings and have their own stories? Do you think that the public is going to be almost blasé about this? Like, of course we have neighbors. You know, the, the universe is massive. Yeah, I think the public um, uh, resonates with that idea. Uh, the scientific community ridicules it and uh, distances it yeah. from the public, which is very strange in my mind because, you know, academia is supposed to reflect the interest of the public because, after all, the public funds uh, science. And, and uh, on a subject like that, that has huge implications for the future of humanity, for the way we think about ourselves and our place in the universe... I would argue that it should be mainstream of science, that a lot of money should be allocated uh, for this and not just for rather esoteric questions like what is uh, the dark matter, you know, that most of the matter of the universe mm. in the universe is not known. For 40 years, we've been searching and investing uh, billions of dollars in, in, in the search. We haven't found it yet. And that's part of the mainstream. And why would that be considered legitimate? Um, uh, whereas the search for something like us, we know that we exist, we know that half of the sun-like stars have a planet like the Earth, 
uh, roughly at the same separation. And uh, why shouldn't we look for something that predated us? Evidence for that, you know, from um, uh, equipment that was sent into space. To me, it sounds like a very um, reasonable and, and commonsensical uh, proposition and and uh, i i would think this should be obvious that the, the acad- academic world should be engaged in this uh, search and and when there are anomalous uh, objects we will find them and you know there is this poem by robert frost who lived not far from where i live uh, uh, taking the road not taken and um uh, for him it made all the difference uh, when two roads in the woods uh, uh, offered themselves for uh, for him to take, and he took the road not taken. And the advantage that I see in doing that is that there may be low-hanging fruit in the road that was not taken because nobody took that road, so nobody picked up those fruits. And there is a chance that with the Galileo project, within a year or two, we, we will find some low-hanging fruit. So I would argue stay tuned. And I don't really care how much pushback I get and uh, whether you know I get likes on Twitter or not, uh, because I'm not subscribed to any social media whatsoever. Um, I, I'm just trying to do what sounds right to me. Hmm. That I mean, that begs the question: What was different about your upbringing, your parents, your circumstances that you know made you who you are? Your special sauce, because I would say 99% of the academic community wants to stay safe and they want to protect their you know their reputations and they want to stay in this little box. What makes you different? And I heard in you in an interview you say you know you're one of those people who puts his body over the barbed wire so we can all progress. What makes you different? What happened? Right. So I grew up on a farm. I, I, I was much more connected to nature than um, to people. Um, and uh, uh, also I was interested in philosophy, which uh, asks the big questions. Um, and uh, I, I had to serve in the military and that brought me to physics. I ended up uh, uh, in an arranged marriage. Uh, but um, uh, after many decades, I realized that I'm married to my true love because there are some fundamental questions about the universe that we can address as as physicists, astrophysicists, and that's what I'm doing. Uh, and I think this is the most fundamental question. Uh, is there a smarter kid on the block? Because it would change everything for us if we realize that there is. We could learn from that kid, uh, you know. Uh, and um, uh, the other thing that happened was a few years ago, both my parents passed away. And... Um, then I realized, you know, we live for such a short time. Let's focus on substance and not on trying to impress each other. Uh, sort of what um, uh, you know, uh, what was said uh, uh, by, um, to, to Vivian Lee uh, by, by Clark Gable, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Uh, in the sense that I don't care how many likes I, I get on Twitter, and um, what um, um, you know, what really motivates me is a question that is of importance to society, that uh, is really exciting, and science doesn't need to be boring. And um, you know, I, I think when we have that image that I was talking about, this photograph of high resolution of an object that clearly does not is not human made and it's not natural, not not a rock, but it's something else. At that point, you know. It's not. I, I will. I. I won't even feel the need to convince anyone. Mm-hmm. I will just know the answer, and that will be enough for me. Uh, just like Galileo sort of knew the answer, and eventually other people caught up with it. 
I don't really care about other people. I just want to know the reality that we live in. You see, the, just figuring out what reality, you know, what is our neighborhood like? Do we have neighbors? And who are they? I want to know that. And I don't care if other people ridicule this question. I don't need to convince them if I have the evidence, if I have the, that photograph. And this episode is brought to you by Sambacol. Sambacol Black Elderberry is the original black elderberry supplement. Black elderberry, if you didn't already know, has been used for centuries in traditional folk remedies and it's prized for its anti-inflammatory properties and high antioxidant content. I first came across black elderberry in Ireland and I fell in love with it there. It's, as a busy mom, I cannot afford to be down for the count. I need to feel strong, healthy, and I want support for my immune system. And that's where Sambacol comes in. So Sambacol makes it super easy to feel your best all year round. If you are interested in trying them out for yourself and your family, head on over to sambacolusa.com and be sure to use my code mother15 to save 15% off your order. And if you need any recommendations on which products to choose, they're all great, but my personal favorite are the gummies. They're actually my kids' favorites too. So I just pop them in first thing in the morning uh, with the rest of my supplements and I'm good to go. Yeah. And I, I honestly believe that you have so many people behind you who, who are hungry for this type of information for a greater knowing. And you are, you really are like the Galileo of, of the new time because I mean, do you feel connected to him like on a deeper level um, that he kind of lives, you know, through you, through the work that you're doing now? Well, yeah, um, I would have definitely invited him to be a, a, a honorary member of the Galileo project that we have. <laughs> uh, and but I, I'm sure he was a diff very different person than I am. You know, um, I'm on a low carb diet. I'm, I'm sure he was not. <laughs> the time. <laughs> um, I jog every morning at 5 a.m. and I listen to music that he probably would not appreciate. Um, I, I like the <laughs> latest music. Um, but um, um, in, in a way, I learned the lesson that he taught us, you know, that I'm, I'm a student of his more than anything. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, and I think it's not about us. You see, that's the point that when people do science, when people do any profession, they often think about themselves and their ego and how do they impress other people you know and uh, I realized that instead of focusing on accomplishments of the past we should focus on the time that we have left and uh, mm. make the most of it and um, it's not about us it's about trying to figure out uh, things you know like where we are the the reality that we live in and and it's the actual reality. It's not the virtual reality. You can put goggles of the metaverse on your head and you will be at the center of the universe and you will be the smartest in the universe. But that is not necessarily the reality that we all share. And I'm, you know, I was talking with uh, William Shatner who played the Captain Kirk in the USS Enterprise on Star Trek uh, yeah. just a week ago. And I told him, you among everyone would understand my point the best because... For many years, you played Captain Kirk in some f fictitious uh, story, you know, that the, uh, in a virtual reality. And then half a year ago, you flew to space on yeah. the, the craft of uh, uh, Jeff Bezos. And um, so you, it probably felt very different, the, the actual reality versus the virtual reality. And he said, uh, I completely agree with you. So 
you know, the point is, I want to, I, I'm really in love with reality. I want to see all its pimples. And a lot of people cover up reality. You know, they put some makeup so that, you know, you won't see things that they don't like. And I, I pretty much, you know, when you are in love with something, you want to know everything about that something. And that's the way I approach the actual reality that we live in. I don't want virtual reality. I don't want to have hallucinations to uh, to, to take uh, recreational drugs where I would imagine some fictitious reality. I don't want to believe in extra dimensions, the multiverse, if I cannot test those ideas, like many physicists are. You know, they are... They are mm-hmm. They contemplate ideas that allow them. It's like a sandbox for them to demonstrate their uh, mathematical skills and to show that they are smart. That's not the issue. Not sh- showing that you are smart is not really the issue. Trying to figure out the reality that we live in is, in my mind, the most exciting thing we can do. Yeah, and I feel like it's such a practical way to look at life, to look at the world, to figure out as much as you can and learn as much as you can while we're here, as you said, in the short amount of time. I mean, it's a blip. Is this is this what your legacy will be now through the Galileo Project, through this book? What do you want your legacy to be in the world? Yeah, this is actually. And, you know, um, when I go to Harvard University, I often see paintings and sculptures of people that want to preserve uh, some uh, something of their physical appearance, you know, to, to leave a monument. Um, this looks a little bit ridiculous to me because uh, within a billion years, uh, you know, the, the sun will burn up uh, the surface of the earth um, and there will be nothing left. So if you really want to leave a monument of yourself, you better send a, a, a spacecraft, you know, uh, that carries something about you uh, and will survive for billions of years, more than the sun. And uh, to me, you know, if there is uh, a way to, com- to, to uh, leave something behind, it would be in the form of a piece of equipment in space. And with the kind of thing I'm trying to find, you know, so that's why I think they may have done it as well. And it could be equipped with artificial intelligence. And um, uh, so it, it doesn't need to be biological at all, you know, and I'm actually very embarrassed by the New Horizons mission that uh, went to Pluto to explore Pluto uh, because uh, they put a box, NASA put a box with the ashes of Clyde Tambow in it, 30 grams mm-hmm. of the ashes. And if you think about it, ashes are just burned up DNA. You take the genetic information about Cl- Clyde Tam- uh, Tambow and you destroy it and you destroy that information to commemorate him and if an extraterrestrial would find this box it would be very embarrassing they would say oh this uh, these humans have this uh, very primitive ritual of destroying the information about a person they want to commemorate and by the way this was sent by a scientific organization called nasa um, so i actually approached the principal investigator and i said look you should have sent uh, an electronic version or maybe a stem cell of Clyde Tambow so that the extraterrestrials would be able to reconstruct uh, him. And uh, he said, well, it would have been a a bureaucratic nightmare for NASA to send a stem Mm. cell. So um, my my goal is to send a spacecraft that would move faster than New Horizon, would overtake it and apologize uh, for (laughs) behind. So if anyone finds it, it will not be so embarrassing. Would you ever use your own DNA to send out? Uh, no, I think um, 
we as biological creatures are very flawed, you know, we have a lot of weaknesses. Mm. I, um, I would be very proud of an AI system that represents me, the artificial intelligence that uh, is perhaps smarter than I am, but carries the, the blueprint, the, the guiding principles that I believe in. Uh, so to me, having a technological kid would be fantastic because that kid can live forever, you know, billions of years. Uh, we, we have biological kids, but, you know, they, they are just like us. They live for a short time and, uh, and are sort of a copy of our, you know, of our DNA. And, um, you know, what nature produced over uh, 4.5 billion years here on Earth by chance is not necessarily the best thing you can imagine. You know, it's just a soup of chemicals came together, made, you know, all kinds of microbes eventually ended up making complex uh, creatures like humans. Um, but you can imagine something better than us. And uh, one step beyond us may be AI systems. And I would be very happy sending a, a, an AI system that represents me as my technological kid into space, and that would be my monument. <laughs> but do you believe in the existence of a soul? Um, no, I think it's just um, a, a, what physicists call an emergent phenomenon. In other words, uh, the human brain is so complex, is capable of doing very complex things. And um, so then you see humans exhibiting behavior that, you know, is, is very complex. And um, so they give it the name a soul. And, and by the way, a thousand years ago, people thought, oh, the human soul exists and therefore you shouldn't have anatomy should be forbidden. You shouldn't dissect the human body because you might hurt the soul by dissecting it. And now we know that from modern medicine that no, no harm is done if you operate a human, no harm is done to the soul. Uh, and uh, thanks to those operations, we have a better understanding of the human body. But we haven't found anything, you know, when operating a human body, we haven't found anything inside that looks like a soul. Okay, so my tendency is that we are made of atoms and they are just organized in ways that make us very complex and capable of great things, but that's it. So when we die, it's just like unplugging a computer from the wall. Mm. You know, so the system shuts off, and that's it. Mm, interesting. Has has the discovery of Oumuamua and, and the creation of this book and just the work that you do each and every day, has that affected how you parent your children, how you look at parenting in general? Um. No, because my daughters are now, um, you know, they, they grew up. And, but uh, perhaps if I were to have a small baby, I would behave differently in educating that baby early on. Yes, I would mm -hmm. agree with that. Uh, because this perspective changes the way I look about um, things. Um, yeah. But my daughters, they don't need to listen to me anymore. <laughs> they have their lives. So, I so would disagree. Planting, I, I still talk to my parents all the time and, and seek their advice. So I, I don't know. I disagree with that. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe they do listen. Maybe I underestimate my influence. <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, we are getting to the end of the time. Um, if there were one final message that you would want to leave with the audience, the listener who's, you know, their mind is expanding right now just by hearing this conversation, what would that message be? Well, um, that science can be an extension of your childhood curiosity that, you know, one of the most vivid memories that I have from childhood is asking a difficult question at the dinner table and the adults in the room would dismiss the question because they didn't know the answer to it. 
And the, um, the, the way I see science is as a way of asking the question and trying to answer it yourself. Don't rely on the adults in the room. That's my message. Don't pay attention. They just pretend. Love that. I love that so much. Okay. So where can the audience find more about you, even though you're not online, um, find more about your book and the Galileo project? Right. So I am online, not on social media. Uh, So uh, if uh, I have a professional website where people can find my uh, uh, weekly essays, commentaries, Mm. uh, uh, I just had one yesterday and another one the day before. And uh, I, I publish mostly uh, in uh, Medium, in The Hill, and in uh, The Debrief. Um, but um, you can find the collection of all my essays there, and there are up-to-date, very recent ones as well. Um, and there are also some interviews that I uh, post there, videos from recent um, interviews. And, um, and, and of course, um, uh, there is more about what we talked uh, today in my book, Extraterrestrial. Um, that is coming in paperback actually this week. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. And all of those, uh, those websites will be in the show notes, of course, for you, if you are out walking about and you don't have a pen right now. Um, Dr. Loeb, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the, your book and thank you for your message of, of curiosity and, and just really discovery that the world right now needs so much. Thank you for hosting me. It was a real pleasure. You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.